Now, Nazareth today is quite a major city. Nazareth in the first century was tiny. From archaeological evidence, and that's about all there is, it was about a population of between two and 400 people. It was an insignificant little backwater. Mud tracks, simple peasants' dwellings, overlooking a fertile valley. It was a nowhere town. And there is very little known about it, apart from what they've managed to find in the archaeological sense. There is nothing on record outside of the New Testament until the end of the second century. And outside the New Testament, it was still within the writings of the church. Nondescript, anonymous, dirt poor. Mostly peasants, subsistence farmers, most probably. Plus a few others. Because it was only four miles from a place called Sephora, which was Herod Antipas's temporary capital and was apparently quite a grand uh, metropolis at the time. And so they think that possibly in Nazareth there might have been a few artisans living there as they worked on this building program for Herod. So that's Nazareth, a nowhere, nowhere town. Even less is known about Joseph. We know he's a carpenter, and he was probably, an, as I said, an artisan, and quite likely he was there to work on that larger city four miles away. But as a carpenter, as an artisan, he would probably be slightly higher in the social standing than Mary. Probably considered quite a good marriage for her. A good prospect anyway for a peasant girl. His family was from Judah in the south, which is why later in the story he and Mary have to go there for the census. And the only records of Joseph are the little ones that we, the, the, the few that we find in the New Testament. By name, he's only mentioned in Matthew and Luke, and once in John. His last appearance in the narrative is where they go back to find Jesus in the temple after tw when Jesus is 12. We all know that story, don't we? They leave him and he gets left behind. Or he stays behind, I should say. The last mention of Joseph is as a reference as Jesus' father in Luke 4.22 and John 6.42. After that, nothing. He's not mentioned at the incident where Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters um, try to stop his ministry, or it looks like that way. He's not mentioned at the cross. He's not mentioned again. Yet still quite a key figure in the story, you would think. The one we know most about, or we think we know most about, is Mary. Anyone want to volunteer a fun fact that they know about Mary, or think they know? Be brave, I might laugh at you, but it's not personal, it's just business. Anyone want to volunteer a fact that they know about Mary, or a rumour, or something popular that they've heard? Yeah. She was a woman. Oh, way to get the ball rolling. Helen. She was. Most probably she was between 12 and 14. So let's think about that for a minute. How old's Evelyn? 
Harold's Lane. Harold's Joel. That's the age we're talking about. But we all think of that, and I read that, and I'm going, gosh, that's young. Harold, how do you summer 16? You're an old maid in this time. <laughs> no offence. And, and, and that kind of shocks us, doesn't it? But that was the norm for the time. Women or girls, 12 to 14, were getting engaged, were being betrothed, having, their, having children, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. Quite normal. If you go and research this, as I kind of started to do, then realised it was a bit of a rabbit hole and I didn't want to go down, there's all sorts of stuff about it. Most of it comes from the Catholic tradition. And you quickly realise as you read it how much the truth has got obscured, let's say, by church tradition. Even worse with how old Joseph was. Going by what they think was cultural norms, he was probably 18 to 22, something like that. But there are traditions that uh, have him in his 50s when he married Mary. If you want to read about it, go read about it. It'll mess with your head, I'll tell you. Rabbit holes. Mary was almost certainly an illiterate peasant girl. It's most likely that she lived with her mother and father, possibly, and that they were subsistence farmers of some sort. That's the, the likelihood. So that's where we set the story. An anonymous couple from an insignificant backwater village. And yet, isn't that so typical of how God seems to work with humanity? Choosing the insignificant and the weak and the foolish so that his glory and his strength and his wisdom comes through. And, and we get a, I guess in some ways the first taste in the New Testament of Jesus' upside down kingdom in Mary's psalm. Remember she goes to visit Elizabeth and, 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 and she says this, I can better flick back for my reference, in Luke 1, 46 to 55, Mary said this, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Saviour, because he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. For from now on all generations will call me blessed, because he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. From generation to generation he is merciful to those who fear him. He has demonstrated power with his arm. He has scattered those whose pride wells up from the sheer arrogance of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up those of lowly position. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy and as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And when I read those words, I can hear echoes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I can hear echoes of other stories, other accounts in the Bible where God has taken something, turned it upside down and used it for his glory. We think of Paul's story. Paul who had this great career as a Pharisee. God took that, turned that upside down and used Paul mightily. And Paul articulates this upside down nature 
clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, where he says, Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. And this is the way that God works again and again and again. But why these two? Why Mary and Joseph? What is it about Mary and Joseph? How do we get to that? That God would choose them. So what do we know? Let's start in Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. While his mother, Mary, was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, nice phrasing, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he did not want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. When he had contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. He took his wife, but did not have marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son, whom he named Jesus. That's Matthew's account. The other account is Luke's. In the sixth month of, Elizabeth, sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, try saying that fast, the angel Gabriel was sent to, by God to a town of, in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by his words and began to wonder about the meaning of this greeting. So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And look, your relative Elizabeth has also become pregnant with a son in her old age, although she has, was called barren. She is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary said, and this is a key, Yes, I am a servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What's interesting about that last verse is that even though Mary was almost certainly illiterate and probably very lightly educated, if at all, she obviously had faith. And that question she asked before, how can this be, is not a lack of faith, but a lack of understanding. 
it's debatable about how aware of the prophecies she was. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. But her response when it's explained to her, yes, I am a servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me according to your word. Two conception narratives. Matthew presents a Joseph-centric account, while Luke sets Mary in the spotlight. And from these two accounts, we can plainly see that the first key characteristic tra character trait, one that they both have, is a willing obedience. Mary, as we've just concentrated on, once it was explained, had no hesitation, it seems, in saying, yes, I'll do what you ask. Joseph was going to divorce her quietly. When, he was, when it was explained to him by the angel, his response was the same. Yes, I'll do it. Let's just consider that for a second. This must have been, in their minds, an impossible prospect. And, and I can just kind of imagine, bear with me for a minute, that having had this, a couple of days later, Joseph, dropping into the bar on the way home, maybe not, comes across a friend. G'day, Joe. How are you? That mare of yours, pregnant. Yep. What's with that? Hmm. Wasn't me. Then who was it? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, right. Pull the other one. It's got bells on. And the same would have been for Mary discussing it. And you can just imagine her in the village with the other woman, and they'd be going, Naughty girl. And almost the same conversation. So, been at the pies again, have we? No, I'm pregnant. Really? You're not married. You're not married yet, are you? No. Was it Joseph? No. <coughs> it was the Holy Spirit. Pull the other one. It's got bells on. How on earth would you explain that? How would you do it today? Even in this current climate where pregnancy outside of marriage is, is socially acceptable. It's a really difficult thing. And yet, they both committed to doing the plan that God had laid out before them. They didn't push through their marriage to make it seem right. No shotgun wedding. And in, as we go through this, as we pass through this part of the story, there are a couple of aspects of Joseph's character that jump out. We're told he was a righteous man. But from his response, we can see that he was a compassionate man. He had compassion on Mary. He was going to do it quietly. He had every right, according to the rules of the society they lived in, to publicly shame her. He was going to do it quietly, to save her as much embarrassment as possible. And yet, in that story, and in their decision to go through with it, we see the second key trait they both have. And it's the, the, the key trait of strength. Here they are setting out this young couple, going against societal norms, going against the norms of their culture, going against the expectations of their culture. Now, Joseph's friends and family would have expected him 
to give Mary the flick. Mary would have expected to be a pariah. And it's quite possible that they still were. The strength. The strength to be different. It always takes strength to go against the norms. It takes strength for teenagers to do something that their peers don't want to do. It takes strength for adults, for us, to do something against what our peers would think normal. It takes a lot of strength to do something that your wife doesn't want you to do. Unfortunately, it also sometimes takes strength to do things that are unpopular in church. When you know that it's right, but church culture has a different idea. It takes strength, a lot of it. Fortunately, it doesn't need to be our own strength. And when we're following what God has told us, it works better if we rely on his strength. A third key character trait is seen a bit further on in Luke's account. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And I'll just stop right here and apologise to theologians among us that I know there's debate about the whole decree thing. Okay. But a decree went out, this is what the Bible says, from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Everyone went to their own town to be registered. Now by their own town, in the setting for the Israelites meant where your tribal family was based. So Joseph was from the tribe of Judah, based around um, south of Jerusalem, or Jerusalem and south. They were originally the southern kingdom, if you remember your Old Testament history. Um, and that was the same tribe that David's from. The lineage is important for the Jewish people and for the prophecies. Everyone went to their own town to be registered. So Joseph went, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, which is in the north, to Judea, to the city of David, called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. He went to be registered with Mary. Sorry, this is what the history is. Patriarchal society, the woman went wherever the blokes went that they were attached to. Who was promised a marriage. So they're not even married at this stage. And, and that's another thing that, that you just need to be aware of, that back at that, in those times, engagement or betrothal was as binding as marriage. Once you're betrothed, that was it. You were promised. Um, who was promised marriage to him and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child she, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's just think about that for a minute. We're in Nazareth and let's just pretend again, apologies to the theologians among us, we're pretending that the 25th of December is actually Jesus' birthday. It's almost certainly not, but hey. Here we are, two weeks exactly out from that. How pregnant is Mary? 38 weeks. Hands up all of you who have had a baby. Hands up all of you who are married to someone who's had a baby. 38 weeks. Get it out! 
I have had enough. I've never heard any other opinion than that. And yet at this point, when Mary is at the worst part of the pregnancy, yeah, generally pretty bad, she gets on a donkey for a four-day trip, at least, to Bethlehem. Now, I know that horse riding is one of those kind of, if we're having trouble getting things moving, go for a horse ride type. Old wives' tale, maybe, along with eating curries and the rest of it. Not the case here. What on earth? Why? Because they had to. Remembering that they're fairly poor. They couldn't have gone any earlier, realistically. They couldn't afford accommodation. They couldn't afford for Joseph not to be working. So here they are, 38 weeks pregnant, on a donkey, four days, down to Bethlehem. Who among us would have just given up at that point? And yet, Mary and Joseph, and here's the third key characteristic I want to touch on today, showed perseverance to travel that journey that God had placed before them, that God had led them into. They remained steadfast to God's plan and to one another. Willing obedience, strength, faithful perseverance are the character traits that God can always use. And as I was preparing this, um, I thought about the move that we're about to take over the holidays as a church, as Church Northwest, and moving from Nazareth, if you like, to Bethlehem. And I know it's not nearly as significant as that. But it is a bit new and scary for all of us to varying degrees. And I have found myself wondering since we've made that decision just how that will look for me personally. How do we relate to the neighbourhood that we're going into? And as I was preparing this, I realised that if we go with those attitudes, willing obedience, with those character traits, willing obedience relying on God's strength and faithful obedience to what he asks us to do, it'll be okay. Because these are things that God can always use and always does use. And we sing that lovely song, Ke kaha, ke maya, ke manawanui. Be strong, be steadfast, be willing. Perhaps not the right order, but it doesn't matter. God can and will always use those traits in us to further his kingdom, to bring glory to himself. And so Mary, who's, I think in our Protestant tradition, kind of marginalised, well, we're a bit ambivalent about her generally. The Catholics, they're hot on Mary. And, and as, as a, a result, Protestant, Protestant, Protestant tradition has pushed back against that. But she does deserve to be honoured. She was incredibly blessed. And she, um, she and Joseph showed wonderful character traits that God used mightily. 
Oh, that we would be like Mary and Joseph in those three ways. Father, thank you for the story of your birth, of Jesus' birth. The way that you brought about your plan from the insignificant and the weak. From the things the world thinks nothing of. You brought your glorious plan into action. And through it you have saved us all. And we can never thank you enough for that. Help us, Lord, to be like Mary and Joseph, to be willing to rest in your strength and to persevere with what you ask us to do. In Jesus' name.